Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Uh, uh, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 3. Um, before we get into our service, I just want to welcome all of you. If this is your first time here or you've been here for, for a while and you've not filled out a Connect card, please do so. And then after the service, you can just drop it off in the drop boxes on your way out. And then also, um, if you're interested in pursuing membership or maybe uh, want to find out more information about our church, uh, October 24th is our next membership class. Um, it's a wonderful opportunity for you to find out about who we are as a church, how we function, what our vision, mission, and beliefs are, and what part you could possibly be playing in it. And that's going to be uh, the 24th after the 1030 service. Lunch and child care will be provided. A sign-up will be at the Info Center. And just want to encourage you uh, to sign up to know how much food to buy and also uh, workbooks to print out and, and if we need to provide child care for you. And then since we are almost middle October, uh, we are starting to collect Thanksgiving baskets for families in need and so going to ask you to contribute to that all the information the little pamphlet of the items that are needed in the basket will be over at the info center you can also sign up so we know how many baskets you're planning to contribute and our goal is to contribute put about between 80 and 100 baskets and then um, those those items will be due november 14th um, but all the info will be again at the info center but let's get into the word if you have your bibles let's turn to john uh, john chapter 3 uh, verse 16 as we're continuing our series uh, through the gospel of John. And so in the gospel of John, John is trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And he shows us this by showing how Jesus revealed his glory and how Jesus received glory from the Father. And his ultimate purpose in showing us that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, is not just so, so that we can have this information, but he's showing us this to invite us into believing in his name so that we may have life in his name. Now last week we, we started in John chapter 3 and it was all about this conversation that Jesus had with a religious man named Nicodemus. And Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. He goes straight to the heart of the matter. And so G Nicodemus approaches Jesus in, in the night, and he kind of wants to gather information, evidence about Jesus, so that he can make an assessment of who Jesus is. And he approaches Jesus in a sense and says, look, I kind of see something with all the miracles performing, which means you could possibly be from God. And Jesus kind of out of left field looks at Nicodemus and said, Nicodemus, buddy, you don't see a single thing unless you're born again. And so we, last week we said born again means regeneration. It is the renewal of the whole nature and the source of this regeneration is from God. And so Nicodemus is confused because he thinks he sees something. He's confused because he believes I'm already in the kingdom of God. I'm Jewish. I'm the people of God. Look at my religious performance. And now you're saying I can't even see the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus says, nope, you can't see a single thing. And then he almost, in a sense, turns around it's like, what you're promising, in order to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again to start life all over again. That's impossible because how can an old man start life all over again? Time doesn't go backwards. Time always moves 
forward and Jesus continues, unless you are born of the water and the spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so in a sense, Jesus reminds Nicodemus of what scripture taught. The prophet Ezekiel promised six centuries earlier that God would do a new work, that he would do a moral transformation by the cleansing of the water. He would give them a new heart, put inside of them a new spirit. All of this will be done by the Holy Spirit. And Nicodemus, because he is an expert in the law, he was familiar with the Old Testament text, he's kind of confused. He should have known that they was already talking about a new birth, that God is going to do a new thing. He's going to give them a new nature, give them a new spirit, clean their lives. And this is why Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, how are you so confused? Don't you know the scripture? Aren't you a teacher of Israel? And then Jesus continues by showing how this new birth will take place. And he refers to a story that Nicodemus was familiar with. He, he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, and as a result people live, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And what Jesus is doing, he's referring to his crucifixion on a cross-shaped pole to those who looks to him and believes in him will live. In other words, the means of this regeneration is the cross of Christ. It's on the cross where Jesus provides the means where we have new birth. And so the reason why I wanted to summarize the story is because what comes after verse 15 is verse 16. And so we learned that as this new birth is grounded in the death of Jesus Christ, we also learned that this new birth is grounded in the love of God. In other words, God's motives for granting us this new birth through the death of Jesus Christ is the love of God. Now, I know you're all eager to get into the text, but before we get into the text, we need to do some work. First of all, I want to talk about God's love, and then I want to talk about the five different ways the Bible speaks of God's love. Now, when we think about God's love, especially today in our culture, this was not always the case. But today, in the 21st century, in our culture where we live, most people do not have a difficult time to believe that God is love and that God loves them. In a sense, our culture is so narcissistic that we're thinking, why would God not love me? Like, I'm lovable. Like, what's there not to love about me? And so we don't have a difficult time believing that God loves us. And then we also have different assumptions when it comes to to love. Like, they're saying, I have no idea what it means, but we're saying love is love. That's love. Love is love. That's love. I don't know what it means, but love is love. In a sense, love is non-judgmental. In love, there's no condemnation. Love is you do whatever, whenever, however. Love is love. And because our culture identifies with love that way, and because our culture finds it relatively easy to, to speak about God's love, and why God would love them, we've almost developed this notion of God's love that is spongy, sentimental, and it always alienates God's love from all the other attributes that makes God, God. So for example, what I mean by that is how do you speak of God's love to the world in relationship to God's wrath, God's holiness, God's justice, God's goodness, God's kindness, God's patience and yet he does not let sin go unpunished 
How do you speak of God's love to the world in relationship towards his hatred towards sinners? You're saying, well, God doesn't hate sinners. Well, read your Bible. He does. So how do you speak about God's love that way? And so what we have to understand to really speak about God's love without alienating his love with the rest of his attributes that makes God God, we have to look at the Bible and see all the many ways that the Bible speaks of God's love. And so today, before we get into the text, I'm going to show you five different ways the people that, that the Bible speaks of God's love. And, and this is borrowed uh, from a book by D.A. Carson called The Difficult Doctrine of Love. It's only 99 pages. Highly recommend to, for you to read it. More than likely, you're probably going to have to read it four times in order to understand it. But I do think it's worth the while. And so in his book, Difficult Doctrine of Love, he, he, he talks about the five different ways the Bible speaks of God's love. So if you're taking notes, the very first way the Bible speaks of God's love is this, love within the Godhead. Love within the Godhead. Theologians call it the intra-Trinitarian love. I just said love within the Godhead. It's way easier to understand that way. What do I mean by love within the Godhead? The Bible explicitly talks about the love that the Son has for the Father and the, and the Father has for the Son. So, for example, after Jesus' baptism, both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, God spoke out in a loud, loud voice, says, This is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. We also see this in John 3.35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. John 14.31. On the contrary, Jesus says, So that the world may know that I love the father, I do as the father commanded me. The reason why Jesus goes to the cross it's because of his love for the Father. And he joyfully submits to doing the Father's will. So there's this love that the Bible speaks about that's within the Godhead that is a perfect love. Each person of the Trinity finds the other person in the Trinity adoringly, perfectly lovable. The Son's perfect love for the Father, the Father, perfect love for the Son. They're all perfectly lovely. And so when the Bible speaks of God's love, we see this love within the Godhead. Everybody following? All right, let's move on. Here's the second one. The second way the Bible speaks of God's love is God's providential love over his creation. In a sense, God's providential love over his creation. God created everything, and everything he created was was good. Does God love his creation? Absolutely. Is he providentially cares for his creation? In other words, he's not some distant deity that just kind of created everything and let just everything fold. No, he is actively involved in his creation. And so even the Bible talks about because of his love for his creation, he allows the sun to rise and the rain to fall on both the godly and the ungodly, the righteous and the unrighteous Jesus in the sermon of the mount says Matthew and Matthew 5 verse 44 to 45 he says but I tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and send the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous so in a sense God loves his creation and even though we don't like it at times, he allows the sun to rise and the rain to fall on both the good and the evil. 
the godly and the ungodly. Because God loves his creation. The third uh, part of the way the Bible speaks of God's love is not only this love within the Godhead, not only his love for creation, but also God's salvific love towards his fallen world. Like God's salvific love towards the fallen world. Like sometimes the Bible speaks of God's love in a kind of moral, inviting, commanding, and yearning sense. So when we think about John 3.16, what do we see? We, God's, we see God's salvific love towards the fallen world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We even see this in Ezekiel 18.23. It says, God says this, Do I take ple- any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord God. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all come to repentance. What, what is the Bible talking about? God's salvific love towards the fallen world. Now it kind of gets a little bit more complicated. Everybody understands me so far? Okay, here's the fourth way the Bible speaks of God's love. If you're taking notes, God's selecting love towards his elect. We read about God's selecting love towards his elect. Where we, in the Bible, we read where God chooses one and not another. So, for example, you go to Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It says this, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I have loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. What do we see? We see God's selecting love towards his elect. When did he choose Jacob over Esau? Before they were born or after? Before. God loved Jacob. Esau, he hated. Before they've done any good or any bad. Again, this is an aspect, the way that the Bible speaks of God's love. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and chapter 10, there's this rhetorical questions of why God chose the nation of Israel. Did he choose the nation of Israel because they were more numerous? No. Did he choose the nation of Israel because they were mighty and strong? No. Did he choose the nation of Israel because they were more righteous? No. Did he set his affection towards them because they were so lovable? No. Actually, if you read about the nation of Israel, you're wondering, why in the world does God even love these people? But yet he loves them. Why? Because he loves them. He's selecting love towards the elect because, of, in a sense, he's sovereign grace. They didn't do anything to, to earn the love of God. They didn't even prove themselves worthy to be loved by God. As a matter of fact, the entire story of the Old Testament is how just one mishap after another, and you're wondering, what in the world is God doing? And yet he remains faithful to his people. And then the last uh, love that the Bible speaks about, and this one is probably the most confusing one, and I don't have time to fully unpack it. But the last one, if you're taking notes, is God's love directed towards his people 
in a provision or in a condition. God's love directed towards his people in a provision or a condition. So when people debate the love of God, here's the debate. Is God's love conditional or unconditional? And the answer is yes. It's both in a sense. Because there are times where it talks about God's love as unconditional, and there are times where it talks about God's love as conditional. Think about this. Once God connects with his people, okay, in a sense he enters into a covenant relationship with them. Then he presents his love in a sense as conditional. So, for example, uh, after the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt... In the wilderness, what did he do? He gave them the law. And by giving them the law, he says, this is how you ought to relate with me and how you ought to relate with one another. And what happens if you don't do these things? You'll be sent into exile. You'll be cursed. And so in a sense, there's this, this condition. Even in, 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 in Jude 21, he says, keep yourself in God's love which shows that you might not be able to keep yourself in God's love. There's this moral condition to being loved by God. I know I don't have time, and you're like, well, that's just confusing. All of it's just confusing. Here, here, here's my point. As the Bible speaks about these different ways of God's love, we must be careful not to make silly mistakes and take one little verse out of context, universalize it, and then remain blind to the, all the other ways that the Bible speaks of God's love. Let's say, well, I, I didn't track that. Can you say that again? I'm just going to say in the most simplest forms. If your only way of speaking of God's love is John 3, 16, you're missing the point. Is John 3, 16 important? Oh, absolutely. Is it true? Oh, Absolutely. But that's not the only way the Bible speaks of God's love. And so we have to look at 3.16 with all the other ways that it speaks of God's love, which is wonderfully true. Let's get into our text, John 3.16. It says this, For God loved the world in this way, when some of your translations, For God loved the world so much, He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. So here's your, the very first truth I want you to learn. If you're taking notes, is this. It's, it's astonishing that God loves us. Like, just think about this fact that God loves us. Now, I think two reasons why we have a tendency to overlook the truth. The first reason is because we're just so narcissistic. We're looking at ourselves and we're like, yeah, he, he's supposed to love me. Like, what's there not to love about me? He created me. It's his job to love me. And then the other view is, yeah, I don't think God can love me because not even my parents love me. Nobody loves me. Why would God ever love me just because I'm just so unlovable? But look at John 3.16 again. For God so loved the world, when God says to the world, I love you, he is not declaring the lovableness of the world. Like think about when John uses the word world, does he use it in a positive sense or a negative sense most of the time? Most of the time, a 
negative sense. When he uses the word world, he's not describing a big place filled with lots of people, but rather he's describing a really bad place filled with really bad people. You're like, how do you know this? You're just making stuff up? No. Look at what John says. Uh, Go to the prologue. Remember, we said in the prologue, chapter 1. What is the prologue? The prologue is the foyer. It introduces you to the rest of the house. In John chapter 1, verse 10, here he uses the word world. He says, he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. Why did the world not recognize him? Because they were living in darkness. Because did they like to live in the darkness? Yeah, they loved the darkness. Look at John 3.19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So the world is filled with people that loved darkness. They avoid the light at all costs. They loved the darkness because their deeds are evil. So when, when God says, I love you, world, he's not saying, I love you because you're so lovable. He's saying, I love you, world. Morally speaking, you are wicked. You are hateful. You are spiteful. You are murderous. And you are idolatrous. But you know what? I love you anyway. Not because you're so lovable. I love you because I love you. Because that's the kind of God I am. And so when we read, for God so loved the world, he's not loving lovable people. But he loves these unlovable people because he loves them. Second point, if you're taking notes, it's just astonishing that God loves us. But now we we even see the measure or the way of God's love for us is Jesus. The measure or the way God's love for us is Jesus. Because of his love for us, what did he do? He gave us his son. He gave us Jesus. In a sense, this Jesus, before he became Jesus, was the eternal son, the eternal word, already one with the Father, living in perfect love and unity and eternity past, now the Father gives us his Son. That's how much he chooses to love us. In a sense, what does God give us? Gives us himself. The measure and the way he loves us is by giving us himself. Now, when we think about this, when we think about the measure of God's love for us in Jesus, there are two things to think. The first thing is, what did it cost the Father? And the easy answer is, everything. God the Father sent His Son for the benefit of creatures that are self-centered and unrighteous. It cost Him everything. The second thing to think about is this. What does Jesus's, what, what love does Jesus himself show? Like in a sense, if you want to see the full measure of God's love, look to Jesus. What does Jesus do? He, he meets people where they are in life. 
He addresses their hopes, their fears, their insecurities. He confronts them, even their sins. Even the Pharisees, like in Matthew 23, verse 15 to 33, he addresses the Pharisees. He calls them blind guides, snakes, and broods of vipers. And then he weeps over them. We see this, this tension. He's so angry at them, and yet he loves them so much, and he weeps over them. And ultimately, the ultimate love of God was displayed when Jesus made it to the cross. And we see this measure in the way that God loves us is by God giving himself to us through his son, Jesus, that costed him everything and also displayed God's love for us. Let's, let, let, let's keep on reading. I want us to read verse 16, 17, and 18. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. So so if you're taking notes, not only is it astonishing that God loves us and the measure and the way for God's love for us is Jesus, but now we see the purpose of God's love. The purpose of God's love is so that we might have life. Notice the pairs. Will not perish, but have eternal life. He did not come to condemn the world, but to do what? To save the world so in other words the the purpose of god's love for us is clear and direct jesus doesn't go to the cross uh, because he's an, he's a victim of faith he doesn't go to the cross for some abstract lesson or go to the cross to be a wonderful example to us he goes to the cross on a purpose is to do what to save people from condemnation because people already stand condemned But I know we are so busy memorizing verse 16 that we don't even read verse 17 and 18. But but think about this. Now we talk about God's love, and yet the world already stands condemned. It's like, how can God love the world and yet condemn the world? Look, Look at what verse 18 says. It says this. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is what? All ready condemned go over to to verse 36 the one who believes in the son has eternal life but the one who rejects the son will not see life instead the wrath of god remains on him how do we speak of god's love to the world and yet at the same time condemns the world Really what we see in our text is that God still pronounces terrifying condemnation on the grounds of the world's sin while still loving the world so much that he gave the world the gift of his son. So in other words, you'll almost have this dual stance of God, of condemning it and yet loving it. And you're thinking, well, that's just in one text. Actually, throughout the Bible, there's this dual stance of God's love and condemnation. So, so for example, uh, in Ezekiel 18, verse 23, here you have a holy God who finds wickedness so detestable 
But it doesn't prevent him from crying out in verse, eight, in verse 23. He says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Moab in, in Jeremiah chapter 48, verses 26 to 36 Moab, for example, is so detestable and so wicked. This is what the Lord says about them. He says to Moab, make her drunk, for she has defied the Lord. Let Moab wallow in her vomit. Let her be an object of ridicule. Moab will be destroyed as a nation because she defied the Lord. He's condemning her. But yet at the same time, the God who has no pleasure in the death of the wicked declares this in verses 31 to 36. He says, therefore, I wail over Moab for all Moab I cry out. So my heart laments for Moab like a flute. We see this dual stance of love and condemnation. You're like, well, you know, that's all Old Testament. Let's put it aside. Well, let's go to the New Testament. Romans. Chapter 1, verse 18, what does Paul talk about? He says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against who? Against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Later on in Romans, we read, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Christians weren't born Christians. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, we're described as objects of God's wrath. For we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we previously lived. We were all objects of wrath. But what changed it? Verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us made us alive in Jesus Christ. So in other words, apart from the love of God, the world will still be under wrath and condemned and no one will be saved. If it's not for the love of God, this is why we need to be astonished at the fact that God loves us. Does he love us because we're so lovable? No. This is why we need to be so astonished by the measure of God's love for us wasn't just a little sprinkle of love it wasn't a little pixie dust that just made you feel good inside but it was the sending of himself the sending of his son to die for ungrateful self-centered creatures like me and you and this is why we see the purpose of God's love so that we might have life because without the love of God we're under wrath and still stand condemned You're not a neutral person. You're not a somewhat morally good that he sprinkles a little love here and a little love there. You are an immoral, ungrateful, self-centered person that needs salvation. And yet God came and saved. The fourth one, last one, if you're taking notes is the means by which we come to enjoy this life and this love is faith. In a sense, in verse 16 and verse 18, we read this phrase, whoever believes or who does not believe 
In other words, the only way we get to enjoy this love and this life is not by trying harder, is not by doing better, but is by believing. Like what Jesus wants us to do, he doesn't want us to impress him. He doesn't want us to get his attention and to pay for our own sins. No, what does he want us to do? He wants us to, to trust him to look to Him, to rest in Him, to believe in Him that what He has done is enough for us. And then for the rest of our passage, we see how this description between the difference between a believer and an unbeliever, look at verse 19 here as it describes the unbeliever. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, And the people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that its deeds may not be exposed. So in a sense, the unbeliever, when the light comes into the world, that light in a sense is the revelation of God, revealing his holiness, revealing his purity, revealing to us who God is. But do we love it? No, we try to avoid it. We love the darkness instead of the light. We prefer to live without such knowledge of God. We prefer to live without knowing His holiness and His purity. We don't want to move into the the light. We love the darkness because we are afraid that our deeds will be exposed. Like think about what happened in the Garden of Eden after they sinned. When God was walking, did they run towards God or away from God? They ran away from God. Why? Because they were afraid that their deeds will be exposed because they felt guilt and shame. Why do we love the darkness so much? Because we are afraid that our deeds will be exposed. We're afraid that we will be showed the fraud that we actually are. And so we prefer to just live in it. Let me just hide it. Let me just cover it so that nobody finds out. This is the unbeliever. Now, normally you think if you do a contrast, you're thinking the unbeliever, he loves the darkness because he's afraid of his deeds being exposed because he's too busy doing bad things. And the believer loves the light, runs into the light because his deeds are so good. No, that's not how the, the, the believers describe. Look at verse 21. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be There's our phrase, accomplished by who? Accomplished by by God. So the believer, in a sense, who used to live in darkness, saw the light, saw the truth. They did not come towards the light and say, I am so glad the light is here. Let me show you all the good things I've done. Let me show you all my self-righteous acts so that you can be pleased with me. No, they saw the light. They walked out of the darkness. Their deeds were exposed. And in a sense, all the things that was accomplished as they walked in the light was only accomplished by who? By God. In a sense, they get to enjoy the light because of what God has accomplished in them to remove their guilt and their shame. It's not because they had good deeds in the darkness. There's no such thing as good deeds in the darkness. But it's because when they ran to the light, 
They saw the truth. Their sin was exposed, all their guilt and all their shame. But who took care of it? Jesus Christ. And as their sin were exposed, God did an incredible work in their life. So in a sense, the one who follows darkness because his deeds are evil, the other follows the light not because their deeds are righteous, but because it longs to show that their deeds have been accomplished by God. Here's what we have to understand. God does not, Jesus doesn't show up to morally neutral people and sprinkle a love here and condemn a little here. He shows up to morally corrupt people to save, not to condemn, for they already stand condemned. And so here's the application, some questions I want you to meditate on. And I know they're elementary, but I think it's important for you to meditate on it. Like, do you believe, do you trust that, that God loves you and died for you? Not, not, not because you're so lovable. Not because you've nailed it your entire life. He loved you because he loved you because that's the kind of God he is. Like, Maybe here's a better way to, to put it because you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I do. No. When you find yourself in sin, overwhelmed with guilt and shame, what do you do? Do you hide and run? Or do you move towards God? Do you believe that God still loves you after you've done that horrendous thing that you hope nobody will ever find out? Do you trust that he died for you? It's easy to believe that God loves me when we're good and we're nailing it. It's a whole different story to believe that God loves me when I feel so unworthy because of all of my failures. Do you believe that God loves you and died for you? Second question is this, do you trust that he came not to condemn you, but to save you and give you life? For you already stood condemned, you were already under his wrath, and your destiny was destruction. And again, it's easy to answer it when we've had good weeks. But I'm talking about those bad weeks when you did something and you don't want anyone to ever find out about it. You just want to sweep it under the rug. You know what that means? It says, I love darkness. I don't want it to be exposed. I don't want to deal with my guilt and my shame. Do you believe Jesus came at that moment not to condemn you, but to save you and give you life? So here's the invitation that, that John gives us. If you believe these things, and in a sense, this was the invitation to Nicodemus, then come out of the darkness and walk into the light. Let your sin be exposed, knowing that he took care of your guilt and your shame and all of your sin. He took it upon himself. Don't hide anymore. Come into the light. Jesus is not saying you need to try harder. I'll forgive you this time. 
But next time, that's it. It's over. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He's come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Look to me. Rest in me. Put your hope in me. And this is the invitation that he has for us. Think about just how astonishing it is that God sees you with all of your failures and all of your sin, your deepest, darkest secret that you even can't tell your spouse because you're afraid that if you tell her or tell him, they won't love you anymore. God knows. And what does he say? I love you. Not because you're so lovable. He loves you because he loves you. He invites you in to look to him, to trust in him. And this is the invitation. Let me pray for us and we get to sit at the table. Our Holy Father, I thank you that you loved us, not because we're so lovable. You loved us despite us being self-centered, narcissistic, murderous, hateful, spiteful, idolatrous. You loved us because you loved us. And you loved us in such a way that you gave us everything. You didn't withhold anything by sending your son to die for us. And you did not come to condemn us and to beat us up. You came to save us so that we may have life because we already stood condemned under your wrath. And Lord, I do pray that you help us to look to you in in faith, to move out of the darkness into the light, to let our sin, our guilt, and our shame be exposed, knowing that, Jesus, you have taken care of it. Think about this. As we get ready to sit at the table, again, this is just a visual display of God's love for us. He invites us in to come and sit, to eat and drink, to feast, to remember. And on this table, he displays his love. On this table, we're reminded that we're not at this table because we've nailed it in life, because we're worthy. Actually, the opposite is true. We get to sit at the table because he declared us worthy. He's making us worthy. He died for us. He gave us himself. And when we eat the body and we drink the blood, we're reminded how Jesus took all of our sins, all of our guilt, all of our shame upon himself. How do I know he loves me? I sit at the table because the table reminds me of the cross. And I just think it's a wonderful visible display, an object lesson that physically portrays his love for us. And so as we get ready to hand out the elements, I just want you to meditate on how God loves you, not because of your performance, not because you're so lovable, He loves you because he loves you. Where all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your sin has been dealt with. So come 
and eat. Come and feast. Come and confess, knowing that there's forgiveness. Remember it. Give him thanks for it and celebrate it. I want you to think about this because I know for many believers, we, we struggle with this. Like, how many times do we feel like we are disappointing God? We said we'll never do it again, and we end up doing it. And we feel like there's going to come a point in time in our lives where he's going to say, enough's enough. It's almost like God has buyer's remorse. But, but, but think about this. If God is sovereign, if God is in control, if God knows everything, he knows your past, he knows your present, he knows your future. You don't think God knew exactly what he was getting himself into when he bought you? He knew exactly what he bought when he died for you. God doesn't have buyer's remorse. He's not going back to the dealership and say, I'd like to return this lemon. This is not working. This is not what I signed myself up for. No. He bought you. He knew what he bought. And he didn't buy you because you were worthy to be bought. He bought you because he bought you, because he loved you. And so how do you know that God loves you? How do you know that God's not disappointed in you? That God wants to return you in a sense? That God has buyer's remorse? Because you're reminded for the price that he paid. As you look at this bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for you, you eat it in remembrance of him. You receive it and you thank him for it. Take it, eat it, receive it, and thank him for it. How do you know God loves you? How do you know he doesn't have buyer's remorse? It's because of this cup that represents his blood that was shed for you. The new covenant that he has made, a covenant with blood. You drink it and receive it and thank him for it. Take it and drink it. Why don't you take some time and just thank the Lord for how he loves you, that he died for you, that his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. Honey, Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. That you who knew what was in man, you knew the hearts of men, and you did not need the testimony of man, yet you died for man. And Lord, all of us are unworthy, and all of us deserve condemnation and wrath, and yet you did not give us what we deserve. If it wasn't for your love, we would still be standing condemned under wrath. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, help us in our fight against sin. Be reminded of who we are. Be reminded of what you've done. That you've bought us. That you've declared us righteous. That you've declared us worthy. That you've accepted us. That you love us. That you care for us. That we belong to you. And so let us not give up in our fight against sin. Let us persevere as we fix our eyes on you. 
as we look to you and we trust you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship our King.